0: Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner.
1: And I'm Ramin Farhad. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward.
0: Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. Today, we're so excited to welcome Jim Min, the founder and CEO of Clearly Health. We're going to have a great discussion about building an asset in clinical practice and building a business around it, what it takes to build a research-based business and organization, what it takes to go from prevention at in the clinic to prevention at scale, and what it takes to really grow the paradigm around it, and driving behavior change in the medical community to enable that prevention. Really excited for the discussion, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me today.
0: Welcome. To start us out, could you tell us a little bit about Clearly Health and, and what you're trying to do in building the business?
2: Uh, sure. Um, so Clearly is a company that was started in 2017 um, in the middle, so we're about six and a half years old, and we we started the company um, leveraging imaging, leveraging end-to-end artificial intelligence but never trying to be an imaging company per se or um, an ai company Uh, what we wanted to do was just create a standardized and personalized care pathway for evaluation education treatment and tracking of coronary heart disease the cause of heart attacks Um, and so that and we we realized that like what based on our prior experience uh, when we practiced at new york presbyterian hospital and cornell medical college that this approach worked. We just couldn't do this in, in at scale. We couldn't do it. It was very manual, very time intensive. Um, it required some things that just looking at the images, physicians couldn't actually glean on their own. And so we set out to create a care pathway, uh, more than anything.
0: And tell us a little bit more about that in your time at New York Presbyterian. What we've had the opportunity to hear a little bit more about you and your early story and origination of Clearly it sounds like these were things that you and your colleagues were really trying to institute in your day-to-day practice and it made sense to bring it to the larger, um, larger population outside of your clinical practice. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think in many respects, like I'm just an unlikely entrepreneur. Like I, I was very happy. I had an amazing job at Cornell medical college and New York Presbyterian hospital. Um, there like, um, we focused on, three things that really inform the thesis of what we're trying to do at CLEARLY. The first is that we we adopted a non-invasive imaging tool called a coronary CT angiogram. It's a contrast enhanced scan that um, allows you to visualize the inside uh, of the heart arteries. That's not a new technology, came out in 2005, but we felt that it was going to fundamentally change our understanding of coronary heart disease and the cause of heart attacks and the identification of patients who are at risk of heart attacks. So we performed an array of large-scale multi-center clinical trials to really try to see what we were seeing on the image, the disease, how that affected somebody's outcome, and could we influence the natural history of that outcome in a positive way to reduce heart attacks and other cardiovascular events. Um, that was quite surprising. There are a number of things that we learned through those trials that we hadn't known before. And then what we realized out of that was that we had a very personalized uh, method by which we could assess an individual person's risk um, and their disease state and so on. And so we then uh, applied that to a second um, pillar of what we were doing, which was the clinical cardiovascular disease prevention and started a prevention program called Heart Health in 2013. And we ran that for many years with just great success in averting events, adverse events and preventing heart attacks from occurring. We had about four and a half cardiologists uh, working there. And so that was the second thing where we realized, hey, this works. If we can leverage an individual's uh, data about the disease burden and type, more importantly, the type that they have, then we could be very successful in terms of prevention. But it was very manual. Um, We were taking hours and hours to analyze these images. And we had the luxury of a very generous donor in the form of philanthropy that allowed us to have literally 20 CT technologists just circling and annotating images all day long. And so we knew that we couldn't scale this past the Cornell walls. And so we had a third pillar, um, which was a computational biology arm. And in early, like this was probably. 11 years ago, we shifted the focus of that team to machine learning, not really understanding at that time what machine learning and AI could do. Um, That turned out to be a really good decision to help us um, more automate and really make more efficient the analysis um, in a manner that is more accurate and obviously uh, faster than humans can do. So we rolled all three of those up um, into a licensing agreement from Cornell, and we started clearly, again, not to to make an image processing algorithm and not to say, hey, we're doing AI looking for a clinical indication. But really, we felt we felt like we had um, learned from the clinical trials and from our prevention clinical program what the secret was or what the approach should be to optimize personalized medicine in cardiology. Uh, we just needed to figure out how to do it at scale. So that was sort of the nidus of how we formed clearly.
1: It sounds like, Jim, that you, you built the company – around the end user needs and the unmet need, as opposed to the type of company that you want to have, right? And and I heard you a couple of times, you brought up that we're, we're really not neither an imaging company or AI company. We're kind of maybe bringing these two together in order to prevent you know, um, heart disease and heart attacks. Um, what are some of the challenges and, and that you had to go through to get to the point that you are today? Um, as as a company, what are what are some of the things that that initially or, or throughout the, your road you have come up against
2: that you had to overcome? We had we're still overcoming. I mean, but like um yeah we we definitely like um there's a lot of um I mean we always talk about building the plane while you're trying to fly it, and that definitely is a relevant analog for startups. I mean, again, like I will reiterate that I'm sort of the unlikely entrepreneur. So, you know, I I, I, I sort of balanced both um, my role at Cornell and my role at Clearly for a few years while we were doing product development. Um, that was the first challenge. Like we had an idea. We didn't know whether or not we could actually do it. Um, we we didn't know how good the algorithms could get. We didn't know, you know, the could we get the product through and cleared by the FDA? Um, once you got that, we didn't know, could you get current procedure technology or CPT codes associated with it. Um, We didn't know, could you get reimbursement uh, with it from insurance payers? Um, In hindsight, like the answer seems more uh, evident, which is um, solve a problem first, um, figure out the solution and then build products and services around those solutions rather than create a product and then look to see, hey, can I use it on anybody? I think that's, and so that's why we, you know, the unlikeliness of the entrepreneurship is maybe, maybe to our benefit in the sense that like, we had spent 20 years doing large scale clinical trials to understand the vascular biology of what we were seeing. We spent seven, eight years applying that in the clinical space with success. And it was only then that we said, okay, there's the unmet need, as you point out, is not um, the knowledge. The unmet need is the, the day-to-day operational solution that allows any user across the globe to be able to access and implement this type of care. So I think those were some of the initial challenges. We've got a ton of challenges. Like, I mean, just like any other business, I don't think we're unique, but we are, I mean, just building a company. I think the hardest thing about what we've done so far is to build the company virtually uh, in the post-COVID era. Like the work from home is real. I think most people want to work from home. I think that we have a generally distributed workforce. And so, you know, we're on Zoom calls a lot. And that's just hard um, because, you know, if we're in the same room, I can sense your body language. I can sense how you're feeling. I can sense whether you agree with me or disagree with me. It's just harder to do that over Zoom and across different time zones. So that's been, I think, a big challenge. Um, I ask frequently other CEOs and investors who have a number of portfolio companies how they're dealing with it. It sounds like everybody's sort of having the same issues. Yeah, it's just hard. Um, And then for us, what we did was we took a very, very different approach to cardiovascular evaluation and treatment. So I'll give you some statistics that are perhaps surprising, Um, somebody will die of cardiovascular disease every 1.7 seconds in this world. And if you say, okay, well, that sounds like a lot, like put that in a frame of reference that I can understand. In 2020, uh, there were twice as many cardiovascular deaths as uh, deaths from COVID-19. That's how big this epidemic is, right? So it is the number one public health epidemic. We have a paper that we are working on right now, um, where we looked at uh, several million people who had had heart attacks, and to try to identify how many of those had chest pain and shortness of breath before their event. And it turns out the majority of people who will have a heart attack will never have a symptom uh, before their event. And so as I look at the way that we've practiced in cardiology for the last 50 years, we've been such a symptom driven field where, you know, we only think about you at risk if you have symptoms of chest pain, shortness of breath, where in the majority of the patients it's silent um, and they actually have their events at home and die at home before they could ever come to the care of a cardiologist. So somehow we need to shift the symptom-driven approach to a disease-based approach at the personalized level, the individual level. I think that was the secret of what why we saw so much success in our prevention program, because we knew an individual's actual disease and we could uh, treat that disease rather than waiting for that person to come in necessarily with symptoms. Currently, coronary CT angiography is only covered and reimbursed by payers for the symptomatic population. So for in terms of go to market, our focus is right now commercially solely on the uh, symptomatic population, but we did announce a large scale randomized control trial that we're pursuing that will study the efficacy of this approach to you know, adhering to a personalized care pathway in the asymptomatic population as well, and more to come when that trial completes. Is that, is that the TRANSFORM study, Jim? That is the TRANSFORM study, yes.
0: Can I just re- restate something that you just said that I think is hugely important? When, what you just talked about is the fact that Currently, cardiologists are treating patients that are showing up at the hospital or showing up in their practices because they have symptoms or other major concerns or risk factors that you know make them decide, I guess I should see a cardiologist or somebody refers them to a cardiologist. If I'm hearing you correctly, and please um, refine this, we're essentially saying they're missing the vast majority of who should be their patients. And what you're trying to do here is essentially expand the pool of patient identification to say, there's this huge mass of people that should be treated in the cardiology community or or in other ways. And we know how to treat them. And, And this is kind of going back to a prior conversation, Jim, you gave me a little bit of a heads up on this. We know how to treat these diseases when they come in the door. We just don't know who the patients are. And so you're swimming upstream and expanding the pie for the entire community to proactively address this disease. Is that... Is that an appropriate representation?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So let me, like, let me give a simple um, analogy that I sometimes put up on a slide. But I, I present two chest X-rays, and it's pretty evident that both of those patients have large lung masses that are um, almost undoubtedly lung cancer. And in the first patient, they're completely asymptomatic. And in the second patient, uh, they're short of breath and they're coughing up blood. And I said, would we not treat the first one? Um, no, everybody says, of course, we would treat that person. They have cancer. We need to treat them. We, we don't do that with heart disease, right? Like we we wait for people to come in with end stage heart disease. Now, um, you know, w- we need to prove within the context of large randomized controlled trials and scientific evidence that treating those people in the asymptomatic state is better. Uh, for people than the current standard of care, and we 're committed uh, to that science through and through um, but that 's the there 's an obviousness to hey, we should focus on people with disease rather than necessarily symptomatic manifestations of that disease um, so yeah, and then to your point, Kim, like we you know I asked the question of whether or not you know the problem that we face uh, with heart attacks is the number one modern public health epidemic is a problem of hey we lack the the tools and treatments for these individuals or are we not doing a good enough job identifying those individuals or both and so i did sort of a geeky exercise and nerdy exercise where i took all of the contemporary medical therapy and i looked at the risk reduction through those medical therapies and i said look i'm just going to academically and hypothetically, assume that they're additive to each other because they're different mechanisms of action and things like that. And that showed me a relative risk reduction of over 90%. And what that said to me is that the tools we have are sufficient. We can, we can eradicate heart attacks and other atherosclerotic diseases like stroke, vascular dementia, these kinds of things, if we treat these people appropriately, but we don't know who to treat right? Because most of these people, in most of these people, coronary heart disease evolves and becomes very dangerous in a silent manner, not in a loud manner. And so I think everybody knows somebody, right, who went for a run and never came back or who went to sleep and never woke up because they died of a heart attack. And that, that's the reason we everybody knows somebody is it is the number one most common cause of death. And that's how it presents in the majority. I go to sleep and I never wake up. The average age of sudden coronary death is 50 years old and so everybody thinks of heart attacks as a senescent disease of the elderly like the the early sudden deaths like the amount of lost productivity is just crazy and we need to find these people and then what i'll cap it off with is if if i envision forward let's say our science and our trials demonstrate that disease-based care even in the asymptomatic population is better than the current way that we're doing things the reason I, I believe that that will fit well within the healthcare system is that that's, that defines value-based care, right? Where you can reduce costs and improve outcomes. And there's a very simple formula for that. It's prevention rather than treating late stage disease.
1: It's very surprising when you talk about, um, I mean, cardiology is the most evidence-based field in medicine, I, I think. Um, and it's surprising that still we're, there's 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 all these unknowns and unmet needs for for the patients that have now haven't even been identified. I mean, obviously, if you don't even know you're you're a patient, then then nobody's focusing on you, and you're not going to get any treatment. Um, you know, one thing that I, that I really uh, kind of like about your mission and the way you're doing things is that you're built on on the science and the data generation, and and you want to validate your AI algorithm. Based on the science, how do you how do you demonstrate the diagnostic performance or making sure the high accuracy from from these large scale um, studies that you conduct to, to predict the outcome that that we are just talking about?
2: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, like we, I mean, we've loosely categorized the kinds of studies uh, that we've done into four different uh, general buckets. Um, one of them is diagnostic performance. Um, the other is a prognostic utility. Uh, can we identify people at risk? The third is clinical utility. Does it influence a physician's management uh, in a manner that, that can improve patient health? And then the fourth is, what is its economic and financial implications? Can it reduce costs, costs of care? And, you know, we're of the belief, the strong belief, that if it's a scientific question worth asking, it's a scientific question worth asking within the context of a prospective multicenter clinical trial. So our science, that's what we've done for 20 years. That's what we feel like we're, is in our DNA. And so just going through each of those four buckets, the diagnostic accuracy, we tested and validated our tools against every conceivable invasive gold standard. So any kind of catheter or imaging tool that you could use when you directly insert it into a heart artery, um, we, we considered those the gold standard and we compared ourselves to that. We also compared ourselves to the non-invasive standards of care. And so the available tools that are out there now, and we've demonstrated extremely high accuracy and performance against the invasive procedures and we've demonstrated superiority over the currently available non-invasive methods. Then what we did was went to prognostic utility, right? So really, can we risk stratify people better Um, Can we identify those at high or low risk better than the way we do with standard of care? And there we have a number of long-term studies. We've um, followed thousands and thousands of patients for two, three, five, eight, and ten years. And so we know exactly what we're seeing and how that affects somebody's outcome. And then it can't just be we found you and you're sick and, oh, go home, like we've got to do something about it. So we also have multicenter trials that we've looked at to see how does the clearly output influence a physician's management. And what we found was that we can enhance medical therapy and we can reduce unnecessary costs by um, reducing unnecessary non-invasive and invasive uh, testing and then the last category of studies that we've done is really around the clinical economic implications of what we do. And what we've demonstrated is that we can, um, when served as an alternative to standard of care, um, we can significantly reduce the overall healthcare cost. So I think that's how we're looking at it. Um, and I, I, we're hopeful that we can, you know, that 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 is sufficient uh, for payers to say, hey, yeah, this is really valuable. We can reduce the cost while improving the care. And again, I'll just sort of reiterate, that's why I feel like we fit really well in uh, value-based medicine, um, because I think those are the two goals that we're trying to achieve.
0: Jim, based off what you just described, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you've been able to build a company with an incredible scientific basis and and research-focused orientation. In my experience, and you've been doing this throughout your entire career, cardiovascular trials, especially at the scale that you're describing, are incredibly challenging to do and exceptionally expensive. How have you built a business off such as a strong research foundation, and especially thinking about um, you know, other entrepreneurs <clears throat> that are listening to this conversation, how do they represent the criticality of this research and really build a business around it in the way that you have?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I don't know if I have the entire answers. I can I can share some thoughts. Like, one of them is, um, I was sitting on a panel and somebody said to me, like, uh, the moderator said, look, you know, despite all of the hype and excitement around AI, AI-enabled imaging, digital health, like, the success stories commercially and from a business standpoint are far and few between. And why, why do you think that is? And what do you think the secret of success is for digital health companies or for AI-enabled imaging companies? And I thought, I thought it was a great question, actually. And so I thought about it and my response uh, at that time, and I stand by that response, is that if you don't have rock-solid clinical evidence, CPT codes, payer coverage, and reimbursement, I just don't see how you're gonna make it uh, as a company. I think that you know, still even in value-based care, uh, the payment methods are often fee for service. So you're gonna need a coverage policy from an insurance provider, you're gonna need reimbursement and and so on. And you're not gonna get the coverage and reimbursement unless you have rock solid clinical evidence to say, our stuff actually works, our stuff identifies people at risk, our stuff guides clinical decision-making, and our stuff improves patient health outcomes while overall bending the cost curve downwards. Like I think that's sort of the the you know this, the the um, the formula I guess for for success. Um, and then in terms of the cost of these trials, you're right. Like I mean, they're extremely expensive. Um, I mean, all in, we will uh, end up putting in so much you know, investment into these trials. And I think there we're just fortunate to have a shareholder and investor base that is committed to this, to committing uh, committed to changing the standard of care, but also cognizant that without the clinical evidence, you're not going to get the coverage policies and reimbursement. And so you really need to drive the high quality science uh, in order to grow the company commercially so they go hand in hand. They're not discordant with each other
1: do you get any pushback jim sometimes with with that kind of approach from the board or some other peers or colleagues or uh with regards to the amount of investment that you're doing in clinical trial um uh, uh or do you have to do i bet you have to do a lot of convincing around that because everybody wants to have the data but when it when they look at the cost and the amount of time it's not just the cost you may have all the money but it takes time to generate the data and understand what it's saying and put it in the right in the right setting that the clinicians can actually use it. Um, do you get the
2: pushbacks or, or contrary ideas or uh, opinions? I mean, we first, uh, it's its a great question. Like we, I would say simply we, we don't uh, get much pushback at all. I think that we are, uh, we have the luxury and the good fortune of being surrounded by a board and investor base that uh, believes in the science and believes that the science drives uh, the clinical go to market uh, rather than, hey, let's go to market and try to figure out you know, what we need to do next. Um, there, there is some eyebrow raising when the, when the cost of the trials are announced, but, um, but I, I'm, I think we're just blessed to be surrounded uh, by this board and investor base that is is highly committed to truly and radically changing the standard of care. Right,
1: And the trials you're, you're running, I mean, these are huge trials for some of the audience that may not know. I mean, your transform trial that, that you're going to be starting soon is I believe about seven to 8,000 people, 100 to 200 sites. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, coordination uh, and resources that needs to go behind it to actually make it happen.
2: Yeah, we we helped. uh, Yeah, TRANSFORM is a big, big deal. We were very fortunate to have, just for the audience, TRANSFORM is the trial that I alluded to, to test the hypothesis of whether or not uh, early diagnosis and risk stratification using imaging at the personalized level would be superior to the standard of care assessment in asymptomatic patients and the standard of care assessment is checking your cholesterol or checking your blood pressure, things like that. And so that, that trial will be 7,500 people all in, um, with the outcome testing, the hypothesis that we can improve hard patient outcomes by reducing cardiovascular death, heart attacks and strokes. So that, that we also have another study that we will announce later this year, um, early this year, Um, we've enrolled so far about 7,500 patients with four-year follow-up, and we'll start to present the evidence on that um, in in the months to come. Um, But we've got numerous multicenter trials that are all going on in parallel. We just are committed to the science and know that it's hard to change clinical practice, um, and you you win through evidence, not through opinion. So we're very data-driven that way.
0: Can we maybe shift the conversation to, to that last point a little bit, Jim? It is incredibly challenging to change clinical practice. And we've had many conversations um, on this on this show about in the medical affairs world and in traditional life sciences organizations, you're spending a lot of time with the provider community, helping to educate, try to bring them along. You're doing something not only very different, but also incredibly disruptive to the care pathway, the payment pathway. Um, but also the way that the cardiology community has been developed and how people are trained to practice medicine and within the different um, subsections of the cardiology community, who's going to be treating these patients and when they're going to be treating them. Can you speak to us a little bit about how you're thinking about driving some of this behavior change and frankly, how you're going to deal with a little bit of the, the politics within the cardiology community in doing so?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Like, So I can tell you that at the end of 2021, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, released a guideline statement that elevated coronary CT angiography to level 1A above any other tool that we have. So at the very least, we stand on the right side of the the professional societal guidelines. Um, In doing so, the AHA and the ACC followed suit um, because the European Society of Cardiology Um, the United Kingdom, Japan, Korea, worldwide, everybody has elevated this tool to a level 1A recommendation above others. Um, The contrast to this tool is stress testing. We've had stress testing now for 60 years. Um, It's sort of the TV analog of a black and white TV that we're using rather than an OLED TV. Like we should be coming up to the times um, and using the most contemporary technologies. The reason we can't in medicine just see a new technology and adopt it and change medicine right away is that there's no evidence to support the use of it, right? Like you need the science and the clinical trials to show that, yeah, you can improve outcomes, reduce costs, and that this new technology is actually better. You can think of it in every other industry, technology reduces costs. In medicine, it tends to increase costs, like because we end up using some new technology on top of an old technology, and all we're doing is adding to the economic burden of the healthcare system. We we would like to change that. I think that armed with the new guidelines um, and then armed with the array of science that we've learned from these large scale clinical trials. I think there's an educational component that needs to happen. I think there's a workflow component, as you point out, that needs to happen. I think there's a financial ramifications, right? Where, you know, if you're used to doing something one way and it's very consistent and predictable um, from the health system perspective, from the physician perspective, on how, um, how that salary is generated, then yeah, you're gonna have to work within that. The, the, the easy solution is to put us in value. Like where, you know, if you go into a value-based arena where, you know, there's a pot of monies that need to be doled out to all these different clinical indications, if you can prove to the healthcare system, the payers, that you can reduce costs, if you can prove to the clinical community that you can improve outcomes, and if you can prove to the providers that their, their cheese isn't getting moved too far, that like they're actually going to do fine, I think that's the secret to sort of growing the pie bigger for everybody. Um, but that, as you point out, is a multi-parametric and very heavy lift to, to do that. So um, that's the task at hand.
0: Absolutely. And, and it's also within the context of moving towards value-based medicine, which you know the community has been working towards for quite some time now and we hope is on the horizon, but will still take time to evolve to Um yeah, I
1: mean, the challenge is always going to be, I mean, beside the financial um, aspect of it, which I, th- I think is going to be a really important driver, um, th- there is also uh, the adaptation from, from the clinicians is another thing that is kind of takes time and it really needs, uh, will require kind of an intense education of, of what we're trying to achieve here. We take advanced imaging science and translate it <clears throat> into practical Uh, clinical outcome for their patients, which which all the clinicians want. Um, But that takes education and time and and consistency to drive that message uh,
2: uh, to the community as well. So, uh, I mean, Ramin, our message is simple. Um, We believe that um, if you're going to evaluate somebody for heart attack risk, you should evaluate the disease itself rather than indirect surrogate markers of the disease. So call it the symptomatic and the asymptomatic populations. For the asymptomatic people, we check cholesterol and blood pressure, diabetes. You know, it turns out the majority of people who show up with a heart attack have normal cholesterol. It's not a good marker for determining who's, who has disease and who, who doesn't. If you look at the symptomatic patient, the ones that we do stress tests for and things like that, what we're looking for is um, in that person with chest pain, do they have reduced blood flow to their arteries? due to a narrowing in the arteries? And is that the cause of their chest pain? If you think about it, think about like um, leaves clogging up a gutter. And so what we're looking for is how fast the water's coming out of the bottom of the gutter drain. But that's not the problem. The problem are the leaves, right? And so, but we've, we've created a diagnostic approach where we never, heart doctors never actually look for heart disease. We look at downstream sequela of heart disease, upstream markers associated with heart disease and not very well associated, but we've never actually looked at the disease itself, which is the atherosclerosis or the plaque that builds up. And there are many, many different kinds of atherosclerosis that we know connote very, very, very different um, measures of clinical risk. So in a nutshell, all we do, like our, our company's mission is to to create a scenario where the standard of care means that heart doctors measure heart disease.
1: And are there staging in in heart disease like cancer or, or some other um, diseases like asthma or,
2: or, or no? Yeah, it's such a good question. Like, I mean, we stage every disease, um, except coronary heart disease. Like we, I mean, we stage cancer stage one, two, three, and four because it has very different prognostic implications, and it has very different implications on how you would treat that patient. And yet, for whatever reason, we've never done that. And the reason is that we have never had a non-invasive way to actually measure and characterize heart disease um, at scale. And so, a couple of years ago, we we realized this this hole in the field, and we published a study staging coronary heart disease. And what we found was that in this four stage system, um, it would very linearly predict somebody's risk when you look at sort of the two, three, five, eight, and 10 year outcomes. I think based on that, now you're armed with the information of who needs more intensive treatment, who doesn't need more intensive treatment and, and so on. So yeah, that's a it's a good point. And it was definitely something that was lacking in the literature.
0: So. Jim, one thing that we we always ask our guests kind of towards the end of our conversations is they're largely it's questions around predictions for the industry. I'd like to shift the question a little bit differently for you to say, what is your prediction for the cardiology industry specifically as it relates to Clearly's mission, which is hopefully the idea of getting to the point where we can truly screen the world? What is your prediction for how we're going to evolve uh, the cardiology c- community and, and Um, the cardiology outlook for patients in the next
2: three years. Yeah. I mean, I believe that we can eradicate heart attacks from this world. Like I believe that if we do it right and what is right, that means I think three, three things like one, you have to have comprehensive analysis or uh, evaluation of that patient. Right. So that means that there are important metrics, multiple important metrics that we need and we need to be able to deliver that to uh, clinicians in a way that's easy to understand and but that is truly comprehensive all in one so that's one I think the second is we have to standardize the approach to, to the care pathway standardized care is always better than ad hoc care if I'm just shooting from the hip and I do something totally different than you do and you do something totally different than Ramin does like we're just going to get complete variances of care and what we need to prove is that a standardized care pathway within the context of well-performed large-scale multi-center clinical trials works better than ad hoc care at the, with a lot of inter-individual variation in care, that standardizing will always be better. And then the third thing, which I think Ramin, you alluded to, or Kim, you alluded to before, was I think that cardiology is the most evidence-based um, field in medicine. We stand by the mechanism of the randomized control trial. Um, what we're great at within randomized trials is comparing one large group versus another large group. and But what we're not good at is pinpointing within each of those groups who is actually sick and who is actually benefiting at the individual level. So the third thing I would say is personalizing the care, which is essentially what we do with cancer care, right? Like we do that with mammograms, we do that with colonoscopies. If somebody's symptomatic and gets a PET scan, um, we follow them up with a second PET scan to make sure that they're getting better, not worse, and they're personalizing the care using non-invasive imaging. So comprehensive, standardized, and personalized. If we can leverage these tools to accomplish those three goals, whether it's in coronary heart disease, valvular heart disease, myocardial disease, et cetera, et cetera, I think that's going to um, not be a slight improvement. I think it's going to be a game changer in terms of improving patient care and outcomes.
0: That's amazing. I love the comprehensive, standardized, personalized. I think it's a great um, vision for all of us to think about how the industry can evolve. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how clearly it's going to help start to screen the world and hopefully prevent prevent heart attacks in the future. Jim, thank you so much for the discussion today and for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Jim.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at ssistrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.